Hi everybody, this is Rabbi David Foreman, and welcome back to Parsha Lab. I have with me Ami Silver this week. Ami? Hi everyone, good to be learning with you again. Rabbi Foreman, great to be here on Parsha Lab with you. Delightful. I think this is the first time, Ami, that you and I have done this podcast, so I'm looking forward to all the exciting ventures that will await us on our journey, and I understand you have a bit of a journey for us. So I have the beginnings of a journey, but just before we jump into the content, I just want to remind all of you listening out there that if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to Parsha Lab. You can find it at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, anywhere you get your podcasts. And obviously, if you want to go deeper into material and hear a lot more of what we have to offer, check out olivebeta.org, and we've got tons of great stuff for you there. Ami, you said that so enticingly that I myself feel myself <laughs> enticed to go check out Aleph Beta and see what wonderful content is there. So, uh, well, uh, if we could uh, get you to subscribe, that would be a real achievement. That's like true. Then we can maybe get paid this week and get fed. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Okay, so this week we're going to be looking at Parshat Korach, one of those really exciting Bamidbar Parshas where stuff gets really messy and ugly really quickly. Uh, we know Korach has this big rebellion that he launches. He gets 250 people on his side and, and basically starts to stand up to Moshe and say, hey, who put you in charge? Right. So Rabbi Foreman, remind our listeners, what is that bizarre story of what ends up happening to Korach and his followers? Let's just jump to the end. What's their punishment? They get swallowed up in the ground, uh, among other things. But that's the one that gets the most press, I would say. Right. So in reading through the book of Bemidbar, there's actually a couple things earlier on that I think give us a little more background to this story. One of the mysteries that that the rabbis uh, discuss at length is, where did this whole idea for this rebellion come from? Right. The Parsha just starts off with Korach standing up to Moshe and that this strange word, Vayikach Korach. And they're not even sure like what exactly it is that that moved or drove Korach to, to fight against Moshe. And again, just to you know, elaborate on that, the strange thing about Vayikach Korach is that it's a verb without a direct object. So Korach takes, but usually takes as a transitive verb. You got to take something and there is just this dangling verb. What is he taking? It's almost as if his name is that which is taken. Vayikach Korach, he takes himself, which really I think is where Rashi comes from when it says Lokachet Atzmo, he takes mm-hmm. himself, takes himself away from the community. Right. What are some clues? What can we find out about Korach that might give us indication, you know, where is this guy coming from? Mm-hmm. So Because his motivation isn't really absolutely clear. Um, right. By the way, I would just say that it's not just you and I that are puzzled by it. If you look at basically what Moshe expresses a kind of frustration to God, which is that he just doesn't know where this is coming from. Is there some sort of personal grudge here? I never did anything to these people. I never hurt them. And Moshe seems befuddled by, mm-hmm. by what's happening here. So when we, when we look at Korach, just his introduction here, right? What do we know about him? We know his lineage and we know his tribal affiliation. Right. He's from the tribe of Levi. He's from the family of Kahat. And he's the child of Yitzhar. And the thing is, if we go back a couple chapters in, in Bamidbar to chapter 4, we actually hear some very specific things about the family of Kahat among the Levim. So in other words, you're, what you're doing is you're looking back and seeing that it's not just any family, but it's a family that we know something about. There's a whole almost chapter of text that's devoted to the specific avoda service of this family. And that might be of mm-hmm. interest for us here. Right. I mean, if we're asking the question, where is this guy coming right. from? Biologically, we know where he's coming from. 
And actually, the Torah is, tells us a bit of a, a of a story or a window into what that family's role was mm-hmm. um, here in the desert. So, if you don't mind, just turning to the beginning of chapter four and, and maybe maybe read the first uh, couple of verses there, describing what it is that that Kahat does in particular around the Mishkan. Mm-hmm. So, more God speaks to Moshe and to Aaron. And by the way, just uh, FYI, if this is going to be the beginning of the specific service of Kat, it's interesting, Ami, that God is speaking to Moshe and Aaron in as much as later on Korach is going to come and complain specifically about the roles of Moshe and Aaron. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. here it is God speaks to Moshe and Aaron about the family of Kahat, and says, Naso et Rosh b'nei Kahat, b'dehoch b'nei Levi, l'mishpotam l'veit avatam, b'ben shlashim shana v'mala, v'ad ben chanishim shana, kol ba l'tzava l'asat ma'acha b'o ha'moed. So, Naso there can sort of have two meanings. Uh, Naso is one of those words whose meaning can sort of change based on context. It literally means to raise up, raise up the people of Kahat from among the tribe of Levi. They're part of Levi, but somehow separate them, raise them up for some sort of special service in the Oam Moed and the Tent of Meeting. And then the other possibility is Naso, particularly in the beginning of Bamidbar, can also mean to count. And presumably both are true. Take a census of them because they have some sort of special job to do. What's the job? Zot Avadat Kahat. This is their job. Their job is in the Olamoye, Kadosh Kadashim. Their job has to do with the part of the Mishkan, which is the most sacred, sanctified part. Now, it's interesting also, if you think about the Kadosh Kadashim, the only people allowed in the Kadosh Kadashim is actually going to be Aaron, the very person that mm-hmm. Karach is going to go up against, really. Um, so Aaron is the one who can alone enter the Kodesh Kadashim. But interestingly, what you're about to see is that the children of Kahat have a special job with reference to the Kodesh Kodashim, which is that when the Kodesh Kodashim is actually operative, in other words, when it's serving as a Mishkan, so only Aaron can go in there, but when it's not being operative, the Mishkan, of course, was a portable tabernacle, and when it's being moved, that's when the children of Kahat jump into motion. They are the packers, you know, the, the, the U-Haul movers, right? And, and that's what we're about to see, the specific ways that they pack everything up. Also, the image here that, that we're about to see and that, that you're describing, Rabbi Foreman, it's almost, uh, if you can imagine, a play. The only actor in the Kodesh Kodashim is Aaron, but then there's stage crew. Those are the people who are packing and moving and setting everything up. And that, as we're about to see, is going to be the job of the Levium. So l- let's see just a few verses describing the Kahat family's uh, job there. Bamidbar chapter 4, verse 5. Uva Aaron uvanav bin soha machane. When it's time for the, the camp to travel, um, Aaron and his children come. The horidu at parochet hamasach. The first thing they do is they, they take down this um, dividing screen that, that basically demarcates the place where the Kodesh Kodashim begins, where nobody's allowed in except under special circumstances. Vichisuba et Aaron haidut. They take that parochet and they cover the ark with it. And upon that, they put another special kind of leather cover. And they spread out above that leather covering another garment of all tchelet. Tchelet's this special kind of blue, a kind of indigo dyed fabric that, that was used in the Mishkan. And as we read through the next few psukim, I'm, I'm not going to read them inside, but basically we see a similar thing play out with then the shulchan hapanim, the table, the uh, when the showbreads, where the showbreads are placed. Um, they also 
you know, kind of take that down and cover it with with special coverings. They do the same thing with the menorah and with the candle holders and all of the different vessels that are in that most sacred space of the Mishkan. The Kohanim are covering with special covers in order to prepare it for transport. Okay, so I mean, I think I see where you're going here. Uh, if I can anticipate a, a very intriguing inference which you seem to be making, there's a with this beged klil tchelet language, which interestingly resonates not with another parsha in the Torah, but with something that our sages say, which is that the beged klil tchelet, which you so aptly translated as the article of clothing, which is complete tchelet. Remember that those from Kahat are using these tchelet, these blue coverings for all of the implements. And they're using it for the shulchan, they're using it for the menorah, they're using it for the ark. But the first time it's mentioned, and the first time it's mentioned only, it's called a beged klil tchelet, a beged that's all of tchelet. And then, so that language, a beged klil tchelet, really resonates with something that Chazal say in a very famous thing that sages say about Korach when they talk about a beged shakulo tchelet, an article of clothing which is made completely out of tchelet. And fascinatingly, you're pointing out that they're not just taking some Something out of the air when Chazal talk about that. They're actually borrowing from the family lineage of Kat. And, and it's fascinating that perhaps the resentment of Korach somehow goes back to this beged klil tchelet in some kind of way. Since you brought it up, I'll, I'll just speak it out a little bit. The, the rabbis say on that strange, ambiguous Vayikach Korach, Vedatam Vaviran, he took all, him and, and these other people and 250 members from the tribe of Reuven. So the rabbis there say it wasn't just that he took himself or took nothing or took these people, but that he dressed them all in a garment that's all dyed indigo and says to Moshe, Moshe, you taught us that if you have a four-cornered garment, you got to put tzitzit on it, and there should be a kanaf that there should be some kind of um, twist of tchelet on its corner. But what if the garment's made all of tchelet? Does it still need tzitzit there on the corners? Does it still need some kind of sign there on the corners? And Moshe says, yeah, of course it needs four-corner garment, still needs tzitzit. And, and Korach says, Moshe, that's ridiculous. So this is this is one of the things that, that the rabbis say Korach was um, arguing with Moshe about. But when we just read it on the face of it, it's a midrash that sounds a little bit strange and puzzling. Like, okay, he's, he's what? He's hung up on one kind of garment with tzitzit. It, it, it doesn't really make sense. But let's just kind of have that hovering in the back of our minds and uh, and let's, let's read, read and on Again, a just to explain the, the reason why you're saying it sounds haphazard on me is because we're out of the out of the blue, pardon the pun. Is, out of the blue. <laughs> right. Is is he coming up with this little magic trick of getting everybody dressed up in this, in this all blue garment. But once you see that that was his family's job, that this was the family heritage, this begged Cleo Trailet, this this beget made entirely out of blue. And as we read on now in back in chapter four, when we hear about the job of Kahat, we're going to see really what the function of this blue garment was. I mean, so far we're seeing the Kohanim come in and they cover all of those holy vessels in the Kodesh Kodashim. All of those really special vessels get covered with this beget chelet. Come with me to verse um, 16 there. V'chila aharon uvanav kodesh. Aaron and his children complete the job of covering all of the, the holy vessels, all of the, the area of the Kodesh, and all of the holy vessels. And it's only after the Kohanim, Aaron and his children, cover all of the, the holy vessels of the Mishkan that Kahat steps onto the scene. Then they come in to carry all those vessels. 
They won't make contact with the Kodesh. They won't touch it, which would cause them to die. And is that because of the Tchelet Begad? Is that the reason so why they're not touching it? What them? it sounds like is that the Kohanim are covering all of the holy vessels with different things, right? The, the leather and the, and the Tchelet. And only then the Kahatim can come and carry those vessels. Remember, they're carrying this, the Kahat in particular carried these vessels on their shoulder. They're coming into close physical contact with all of these sacred vessels. But somehow, if they were to touch them directly, the Torah seems to be implying so basically what you're saying is, is that is that when the Mishkan is in service, so the only one who's allowed in the Kodesh Kodeshim is Aaron, then there's this transition period, which is taking the Mikdash out of service, the Mishkan out of service, and carrying it. They affect the transition by spreading this Begad Tchelet over all of the things, and only then can the movers come and do their job, which is the people of Kahat, whose job is lasate, to carry. Again, there's that word, to carry. So it's not just naso at Rosh B'nai Kahat, as we talked about before, to take a census of them, but there's also the sense in which that you're lifting them up for a special job, but the special job involves lifting up itself, the lifting of these implements, which are only available for lifting after they're taken out of service. And only then can they be lifted in such a way that they will not die because they're not coming into physical contact with the Kodesh because there's this Begat Chelet, which is this completely dyed blue garment separating them from the Kodesh. And, and somehow their job is really dangerous. And the Torah, a couple psukim later, it actually seems to emphasize the, the danger of their job. Let's, let's, if you don't mind reading a couple psukim down, Yudchet, um, verse 18 there. Do not cut them off from among the Levim. You should do this for them so they should live and not die when they come close to the Kodesh Kodeshim. They have to take special precautions, skipping They cannot go and see. Now, what does Kabbalah mean there? Strange word. Well, it sounds to me like the verse is saying, the, Kahat, the family of Kahat will not come to see Kivala et HaKodesh when the holy is swallowed, Vametu, which would kill them. It's interesting because it's almost like there's this degradation that happens to the Holy of Holies in the sense that everyone uh, sees and relates to the Holy of Holies with, with awe and with fear and with trepidation when it's in service. And yet what's happening is that it's just being packed up like so many boxes that go in a U-Haul, mm -hmm. which is almost like a swallowing. And that's that Hebrew word, the word to dissolve or to swallow. They shouldn't see uh, what's mm -hmm. happening. They should. It's almost like they should avert their eyes. Kabbalah da Kodesh uh, when the Kodesh is being swallowed, been turned into these U-Haul boxes, lest they die. Right. Just imagine, you know, the, the, the most sacred thing that the whole camp is, is built around and centered around. Nobody can walk in there. God's cloud hovers there. God speaks to Moshe there. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, pack up. Now it's just it's just wood and beams and, and gold and sticks. And, and like you're saying, pack it up in the U-Haul. All right, Ami, very interesting. And how do you tie this all together with a bow? Where are you going? Okay, here? so now look at that, that last really strange word, dissolving or swallowing the Kodesh. What does that remind us of in the story of Korach? There you go with the earth again, right? Because the earth swallows these people alive. And that's kind of what you open this podcast with, that really strange mm -hmm. thing that God creates out of nowhere, the swallowing of these people alive. 
that sort of evokes the swallowing of the Kodesh, the swallowing yeah. of the Holy Ones. And, well, of course, what does Korach want to be? He wants to be mm-hmm. the Kadosh, which strangely is exactly what Moshe calls him, right? The, the whole argument about it is what's the Kadosh? What's the Kadosh? What's the Holy Ones? Right, as Moshe says, Vioda Hashem Kadosh. God will select the one that is holy for him. He's going to be that leader. He's going to be that Aaron. And fascinatingly, the Kadosh gets swallowed in the story of Korach as well and their death. Ami, this is terrific. You get a prize. Give that man a free dunk. <laughs> so so I I I wanna kind of also just read out the the textual uh, echoes in the Korach story because because when Korach and his, you know, band of 250 men stand up to Moshe, Vayomru aleihim rav lachim. They say, you've got too much going on, Moshe. Ki kol kulam kadoshim. The entire people, the whole nation are all kadoshim. They're all holy. Uvetocham Hashem. God is within them. Those words also, Vitocham Hashem, kind of kind of remind us of, of the Mishkan as well, right? God says, I, I want to yeah. dwell in my Mishkan, in my holy place, among the children of Israel. Which, by the way, Korach. suggests that there's a that that in the ideal world, God isn't just Shochin within the abode of the Kodash Kodashim. Somehow, through that, vicariously at least, he is Shochin within all of the people. And it's that sort of democratic egalitarian vision that at least on the face of it, Karach seems to be trying to uphold, or if not uphold, at least hide behind. Right. And and he he's using this word, we're all Kadoshim. Moshe sets up a test for God to show us who's the Kadosh, who's the true Kadosh here. And what happens is that Korach's Kadoshim, so to speak, Get swallowed. Uval aotam vet lahem otam. It's that same same language of swallowing up. So where we first encounter Kahat's job, we're, we're shown a warning: don't let them come so close to the holy of holies that they'll see the holy being swallowed up and they'll die. And ironically, once the child of Kahat seeks to become the holy, then mm-hmm. what what happens to him is what the job of his family was supposed to do to the Kodesh, to be there to sort of carry it after it is swallowed. He becomes swallowed. He so like if you choose to become himself. the holy, then what's going to happen to you is you're going to get boxed up in the earth this time and mm. swallowed. So we're seeing here these... The first time we see Kahat's job there in the Mishkan, they're warned that they should not come to see the Kodesh being swallowed. And then when we see what happens with Korach, the descendant of Kahat, he himself says, we're the Kedoshim, we're the Holy Ones, and, and, and he gets swallowed. So it's a bit bizarre. It's a bit strange. What are we supposed to make of this? I was just wondering, yeah. you have any thoughts here, Rabbi Foreman? Any, I mean, it's the first time I've seen it, so I would say that any thoughts I have are very tentative. It seems like a little bit of a mystery to me, but it feels mm-hmm. to me sort of instinctually mm-hmm. that to understand the resentment of Korach, which, as mm-hmm. you say, on the face of it comes from nowhere, it seems like it comes from somewhere. His resentment mm-hmm. seems to be linked to the family of Kahat. Now, the question mm-hmm. is what the nature of that linkage suggests. What light does that shed on his resentment? Is he resentful because he feels that his family has been shortchanged? Is it that he feels that the job of being the Packers of the Mishkan is somehow inherently problematic and degrading when everyone should be Kadosh, when 
There's this great holy of holies, which is exclusive, and it's our job to take that exclusive thing and make it normal for everyone, the kind of thing that could just be carried around in a box. So it's almost like our job was to make it normal for everyone. Our job was to make it this thing that everyone could mm. access, that you could just carry that wouldn't hurt you. So maybe that's the ideal form of the Kadosh. Maybe it's almost an elevating of the role of his family, that what we're doing is the real Kadusha. What Aaron's doing is fake. He's just mm. one guy in the middle of a Kadosh Kadashim. What we're doing is democratizing everything. Mm -hmm. We're doing is taking it and it's a box and you can touch it and you can't die and it's still the Kodesh and it's still this godly thing. And maybe that becomes the paradigm for what the Mikdash really should be. And if you take that out of the Mikdash and transfer it to people, then that means that there's a kind of democratization, not just in the structure of the Mishkan, but in those who serve the Mishkan. It's not just about Aaron as the untouchable. It's about the real people who do the work are the Packers, are, who, are, who, who make this accessible to everyone. And mm -hmm. those who can make things accessible, that's the greatest thing in the world. And maybe that's where Korach's coming from. Right. So so what I hear in that is sort of along the lines of Korach's claim, like a de democratization of holiness. Everyone's holy. Look at me. You think the Mishkan's so holy? I pack it up in a box and carry it on my shoulder. Everyone can have equal access to this. Well, and not not some. I wouldn't say that. And it was, it's not a denigrating of the holiness of the Mishkan. It's a transmogrifying the understanding of holiness. Uh, as, as he says, Rav Lachem, Kol Kulam Kadoshim, that holiness has to be mm -hmm. understood in a democratic purview, otherwise mm -hmm. it's not holiness. And therefore, the true holiness is the holiness of the U-Haul, of the right? Not the mm -hmm. holiness of the Mishkan as it functions, mm -hmm. because only there does the godly thing become egalitarian and democratized and available for everyone without dying. So maybe I, I'm curious, like going back to those original psukim about Kahat, why is it dangerous to touch the Kodesh? Why is it dangerous to see the Kodesh get covered? Or, I mean, what it seems what's, to evoke what's the big is danger that, there? and again, this maybe is beyond the scope of our talk, but, you know, there's that famous Ramban, Nachmanides, that suggests that the entire enterprise of the Mishkan is a recreation of the Sinai experience. And what mm -hmm. the Mishkan is fundamentally is a recreation of the mountain. But whereas the mountain was a work of God, the Mishkan is a work of man. Uh, we talked about this at length, or I talked about this at length in our in an Aleph Beta extended audio course that I recommend to you guys. Uh, the Golden Calf, Shattered Tablets and a Calf of Gold. It's a 13-part lecture series with a 250-element chiasm that spans the entire second wow. half of the Book of Shemot at the last three lectures of it, last three hours of that. But the, the climax of that chiasm is the link between the mountain and the Mishkan. The man-made mm -hmm. structure evokes the God-made structure of the mountain and is even more holy than the mountain. But back at the mountain, you had that language too. You have to be careful not to touch lest you die. And by the way, you know, if you go back to Sinai, Ami, one of the strange things about Sinai is remember that all that back and forth between God and Moshe. God says, Moshe, go down and warn the people, tell them not to touch. So he goes down, warns them, comes back up, and God says, warn them again. Moshe says, but I, I just warned they them. They already know the not to I do told it. Not I, to. I told them not. God says, just go down and warn him again. I'm telling you, warn him again. What's that about? Why do I have to hear how many times he has to go back down and warn him? The answer, the way I understand it, is revelation is a tricky thing. Revelation is when the God who's beyond space and time becomes imminent in the world. 
So what happens is, is that the mountain becomes God's embassy in the world. Now, the tricky thing about an embassy is that the embassy looks right. an embassy in New York of the of, of Uruguay. It looks like it's part of New York. It has the same grime of New York. It has the same subway entrance next to it of New York, but it's not part of New York. Legally, it's part of Uruguay. That's the way embassies work. Same thing with the mountain. The mountain looks like a mountain. It feels like a mountain. It touches like a mountain. But if you touch the mountain, you die because it's not part of the world of space and time. It's a world beyond space and time. It's God's embassy in this world. So God says, this is really dangerous. There is a subtlety here, right? It looks like a mountain. It's, there's this cliff. You touch this mountain and it's a cliff and you fall off into nothingness and you die. So warn them again, warn them again, because they can't trust their senses in this case. And it's the same thing with the Mishkan. Then the Mishkan, you can't trust your senses. It looks like regular gold. It looks like regular wood, but you touch it and you die because it's the mountain on wheels. So be really careful. And the role of Kahat is supposed to be the role of the people who are the, the most connected to this, right? Who sense the danger of that transition and need to be sensitized to it. And Korach is degrading that and instead saying, no. What this is all about is that it can't hurt you and it shouldn't hurt you. And it's best when it doesn't hurt you. You know, it's almost a misunderstanding inversion of his family's heritage. So I, I would say along those lines, Kahat actually is in the most dangerous position of anybody because Kahat actually carries the Arona Kodesh on their shoulders. Kahat touches the most sacred, you know, Kodesh HaKodashim, the holiest of holies, and they run the biggest risk of the whole thing losing its, its special unique status. So the one thing that keeps them separate from the Kodesh HaKodashim is these big day tchelet, right? This whole ritual of the Kohanim covering things so they don't see it. If they see it, they're going to die. If they touch it, they're going to die. In some level, if you violate that fundamental boundary between human beings and holiness, there's something destructive about it. And that boundary needs to be maintained. And Kahat's job is to maintain that boundary. It seems to be exactly that boundary that Korach is railing against. By the way, uh, just it's interesting that Tchelet should be the boundary coverer, hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. if you think about Tchelet, and, and of course your mind immediately goes to that Chazal about Tchelet, what the rabbis tell us about Tchelet. Remember what the rabbis tell us about Tchelet? Tchelet, the, so the, the Gemara, I believe it's in, in Manachot, um, says... Tchelet domelayam, the the blue indigo dye, it's similar to the sea. Yam domelarakia, the sea is similar to the the firmament, the heavens, the sky. Rakia domelakisa kavod, and and that blue of the sky, it's somehow similar to to God's throne of glory. And you see how that is so evocative in light of everything that you're talking about here. Tchelet mm. is the thing that somehow touches both imminence and transcendence. You know, and something I noticed, by the way, when I went to the Tchelet factory, there's a Tchelet factory in Israel where you can actually watch this dye being produced, and it comes from a snail, the Chilazon, and they've identified the snail, they think. And if you look at the snail, there's an interesting thing about it. It's only found in certain places off the coast of the Mediterranean coast. And when you look at it, they have these snails, actually, that you can see in an aquarium, is that they're perfect, perfect camouflage with the sand which is that you can't mm. distinguish them from the sand. And wow. so the, the dye of the chilazon comes from the dirt 
and the sand, and you just can't tell the difference between that and the earth. And somehow, once you excrete the dye, then the dye magically looks like the ocean, which the snail is in. Mm -hmm. And then that looks like the sky, and that looks like the firmament, and that looks like the throne of holiness. The, mm -hmm. So what is Tchelet? Tchelet is the transition color between the transcendent world and dirt, right? And just mm -hmm. regular dirt of our world, right? The, the earthy, human, frail existence of dirt and of water and a very, mm -hmm. very physical stuff. And therefore, Tchelet becomes, you know, that which you cover this ark in. And the ark, again, is this thing that comes from the transcendent world and is right here and is imminent in our world and it gets covered with Tchelet. And somehow here are the children of God lifting up this Tchelet and, and aggrandizing it and saying this Tchelet mm -hmm. is what it's all about. That ability to make that transition and somehow not die and somehow there's something in there that leads to Karach's downfall. So I, I kind of, you know, I want to go back to that that other Midrash Chazal that you mentioned, that the rabbis say Korach dressed everyone up in 250 garments of all tchelet. Where did Korach get 250 garments of tchelet from? <laughs> Probably from all of these bag of tchelet and the family heirloom. If you're connecting the cloaks of tchelet, that he dresses these 250 in with the cloaks of his heirloom collection of the big day tchelet, the cloaks of tchelet that covered all of these implements, then metaphorically, it's almost like he's swiping the cloaks from those implements. Now, when he swipes mm -hmm. the cloaks from those implements, what he does is he exposes himself to death. He exposes himself mm -hmm. to the fire and the fury of the Kodesh, mm -hmm. which is that it's not boxed up anymore safely in the U-Haul. The, the special magic covering that keeps it safe is not on it anymore. And therefore, the Kodesh, which is meant to be something that a human being could enter in the right way, at least Aaron on Yom Kippur, or at least the people of Kat could carry in, in its drive to make the Tchelet accessible to everyone and saying that it's all about the Tchelet, somehow the Kodesh has become deadly. And and picking up on that thought, it's almost like, Ami, what did the people of Kat have their most direct contact with? The Kodesh or the Tchelet? The Tchelet. It was really. the Tchelet. So what was the most Kodesh thing that they were directly in contact with? The Tchelet. So it's almost mm -hmm. like they were looking at that and saying, that's the most amazing thing. That Tchelet, that's the most fantastic thing there is. Here, look at this Tchelet. Dress everybody up in these robes. Isn't that Tchelet the most amazing thing in the world? Right? Mm -hmm. That thing that can cause this transition from sea to sky to light. That's the best thing in the world. Who cares about the thing that the Tchelet covers? Right? But in doing that, you remove that, then all of a sudden the real Kodesh becomes deadly because you're misplacing, you're misusing Tchelet, which maybe somehow mm. is what these guys are doing. So, Ami, it feels to me like there's a, a grand mystery here that you've begun to uncover. And one of the things that I feel with these grand uncoverings, and, and I wonder if you feel the same, is that this kind of learning requires, among other things, great patience. And it's something which, which sometimes watching Aleph Beta can be a little deceptive because you look at this 10-minute Parsha video, it looks like a nice quick vart. You know, you say it over at the table and it's great. It took me 10 minutes to watch, probably took those guys 10 minutes to prepare. It doesn't take us 10 minutes to prepare. Um, and it doesn't even take us 18 hours to prepare. <laughs> it's jigsaw puzzling. And sometimes when you're putting together a jigsaw puzzle, you see a little bit of a picture. You don't know what it means, but you know it means something. And you put it off there and you let your mind ruminate on it and you sleep on it. And sometimes years later, you see something else and it all clicks mm -hmm. and you begin to have an understanding. you got to keep these things in the back of your mind. And as you go forward and as you learn, 
things start to resonate with this more and more and it becomes more and more meaningful. So, Ami, you and I have begun, well, I mean, you've begun to uncover something magnificent here. What it means, I think you and I have just begun to uncover. Um, but I think, you know, with careful sifting, more clues will come. The meaning that the Taurus seems to be getting across us will again sort of emerge out of that water and into the sky and <laughs> and, and sort of take the shape of some sort of throne of a holy glory as as we begin to see it. But I think it it requires patience. And I would actually offer our our listeners out there in in Aleph Beta land or in Parsha Lab land, which is, you know, what do you guys think? Look this over, look at the text carefully. Are there any clues that Ami and I have missed? Are there more pieces to this puzzle? There usually are. Uh, you can send us back emails. Uh, there should be a link on our, on our page on the website. Uh, and, and, and if you want to just send us an email, it's simple. It's info at alephbeta.org. Let us know what you think. Thank you, Rabbi Foreman. This was this was a great uh, exploration to, to do with you. Thank you. Ami, I really have to hand it to you. You're on to something amazing. Beautiful, magnificent Ami. So thank you so much. This is Rabbi David Foreman wishing you a very good week. And we'll see you next week at Marshall. Lab.